Chapter 4 of Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord by Bramwell Booth Chapter 4 Christ Come Again And she brought forth her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. Luke 2, verse 7 Christ formed in you. Galatians 4, verse 19 The life of Jesus Christ in Palestine was a foreshadowing of his life in all who accept him. God appointed him a Savior, not only because he should bring redemption nigh by a sacrifice which he alone could offer, but because he was also appointed to be the firstborn of many brethren, to be the head of a new family, the beginning, the new Adam, the first of a new line, in which character should cease to be merely human, even though perfect with all human perfections, and should become a union of the human and the divine, in which, in fact, the body and mind and spirit of man should continue to exhibit the wonder of Christ's incarnation, and show forth God clothed with man. The life of Jesus divides itself quite naturally into several distinct periods, each having its own special characteristics and peculiar history. There is his birth and infancy, his childhood, his youth, his manhood, his perfected or completed life following Calvary and the resurrection, and, may we not say, his eternal glory, upon which a few of his disciples saw him begin to enter the transcending splendor of the ascension. Every one of these phases or sections of his wonderful experience of earth has its continuing lessons for us. All speak aloud to us of his purposes and plans, and reveal to us the power and force of his inner life in the outward or public appearances and acts which belong to each. God has hidden many things from us, mysteries of nature, of grace, of eternity, but this mystery of God's relations to men, he has exhausted his resources in order to make plain. Before all else, the life of Jesus is a revelation of the minds and methods, the principles and the practices of God, as they ought to appear and as they ought to work out amid the surroundings and limitations of humanity. It is to the beginnings of that life to which our thoughts turn at this Christmas season. We dwell with affection on the oft-depicted picture and repeat of the oft-depicted words, the join in the old, old hallelujahs of the shepherds with something of the zest and freshness of a first love. The story is so unlike all others and touches with such unerring potency chords in the human soul which call it to a higher and nobler life, 
that no matter who gazes upon the babe of Bethlehem, he feels a kinship with all the world inhaling the desire of all nations. The manger, the silent companions of the stable, the swaddling clothes, what a touch of human tenderness, motherliness, so to speak, is in that line and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. The adoring shepherds, the star, the wise men, all thoughts of their wisdom for the moment gone, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, the rejoicing, and yet trembling mother, the little child, we see it all. Seeing, we believe, and believing, we rejoice. The day star from on high hath visited us. We know in whom we have believed. The great condescension is before us. Strength has made itself dependent on weakness, cause upon effect, eternity upon time, God upon man, and he has done it for our sakes. The divine condescension never appears so new and so real to us as when we stand at the side of this lowly cradle. Here are no high-sounding doctrines, no hard words, no terrible commands, no far-off thunders of a new Sinai, no rumblings of a coming judgment. Here we see Jesus, and Jesus only. Jesus showing himself in our very own flesh and blood, submitting himself to the weakness of our infirmities voluntarily clothing himself with our ignorance, and making God the present tangible possession of the whole human family, bringing him very nigh to us in our mouth and in our heart, if we can but believe. And, more than this, God joined in that babe his great strength to our great nothingness. He bound us to himself, he robed us, as it were, with himself, and he robed himself in us. Henceforth the tabernacle of God is with men. Henceforth every one of us may be conscious of an inward presence, of which we may say in holy joy, angels and men before him fall, and devils fear and fly. It is this manifestation of Jesus in his people for which the Apostle prays in the words I have quoted, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again until Christ be formed in you. Nothing less will satisfy him, because he knew that nothing less will prevail against the power of the world, the flesh, and the devil in any human heart. Christ formed in you, Christ born again in them, that is his agonized prayer, his one hope for them. In the workshops of human effort, no instruments, no skill, no motive power exist for the formation and development of character, apart from the energizing vitality of God's Spirit dwelling in us. He is the indispensable foundation of any goodness or wisdom or beauty that can last. 
purity begins and ends in him. Faith finds her author and finisher in him. Truth, which is the beauty of the soul, is but a reflection of his image, and love has no being but in him. And so, Paul says, let him in. Conformity to his example is only possible by the reformation in you of his life, and the growth again in you of his person, the mind of Christ in your mind, the spirit of Christ in your spirit, the presence of Christ in your flesh and blood, the motive power of Christ, the Father's will, prompting your every thought and word and deed thereby transforming your body into a temple of the Son of God. And because in this unity of purpose with the Father, the Christ of glory stooped to the infancy and childhood of Nazareth, yielding himself completely to the bonds and limits inseparable from the life and conditions of a little child, and thinking no humiliation of our nature too deep for his love to tread. So he will condescend to the lowest depths of weakness and want revealed in your heart and life. He will meet you where you are. He will deal with you just where you are weakest and worst. This is indeed the keynote of all that God has to show you. It is your own link in the long chain of patient and ever-new revelations of God to man. For what is the history of man? What is the story the Bible has to tell? What is the testimony of all time, but that God has ever been speaking to man, appearing to man, opening now his eyes, and now his understanding, and now his heart, and making an everlastingly new revelation to the soul, that God in him is his sole hope of glory. And his Christmas message today is still the same. To you, if you are willing, Christ will come as really, as sensibly, as wonderfully, no, a thousand times more so, as he came to Mary and to Bethlehem. In truth, a second coming but in many and wonderful ways like unto the first. 1. The childhood of Jesus was attended by remarkable recognitions of his divinity. At his birth, at his dedication, in Herod's instant resolve to kill him, in the temple with the fathers, by many clear tokens men confessed and acknowledged that he was the Son of God. If he is being formed in you, there will be equally definite and not very dissimilar signs of recognition. First, before all else, you will know, with Mary, that the new life entrusted to you is divine, that God has entered into your heart to make all things new. It is just the absence of this assurance which stamps so much of the Christianity of the present day in effect, a religion without God. Its professors have no certainty. They seek, but they do not find. They ask, but they do not receive. They have no foundation in the sanction of their own consciousness to the indwelling person, 
They have no revelation. They have, in short, no God. How far, even as the East is from the West, is this from the glorious confidence with which Mary sang, and in which you can join, if, indeed, your Christ is come? My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Salvation is of the Lord, and so is the assurance of it. Where there is the life of God, there will be his witness, even in the heart of the weakest and slowest servant of all his household. If you are not clear about this first evidence of your Lord's coming, let me counsel you that there is something wrong. If Christ be formed in you, you will assuredly know it beyond the power of men or devils to make you doubt. But others than Mary also acknowledge this appearance of God manifest in flesh. The shepherds and the wise men, holy Simeon and Herod the king, each in his own way adds his own tribute to the new life that had come down to man. The shepherds and the strangers from afar bow down and worship. Strangers, perhaps, were more ready to rejoice with you than your own kith and kin when first Christ came to you. Simeon, who had so desired to see the salvation of God, sees and is satisfied. Perhaps some Simeon had thus watched and waited and wept for you. And when the Lord came to his temple, he saw it and was ready to depart with joy. Herod the king sought to kill the child. So it is even now. Don't be deceived. Where Christ comes, storms come. The world of selfishness and power and wealth will kill the divine thing in you if it can. Between the prince of this world and the prince of the world to come, no truce was possible long ago in quiet Judea and no truce is possible now. The spirit of the world is still the spirit of murder. It is called by other names today, and under its influence, men will tell you that the life of God in you is not to take those forms of violent opposition to wrong, and of passionate devotion to right, and of burning zeal and self-denial for the loss which they took in Jesus. The real meaning of their tale is that they are seeking to kill the child. But do not be dismayed. Remember Mary's flight into Egypt. The peril of her son made her, regardless of her friends, of her reputation, of her home, of her life. She must guard that precious life at any cost, at any risk, at any loss. Is there not a lesson in her example? Let nothing, let not all the sum total of this world's pleasures and possessions lead you to risk the life of God in your soul. Listen to no voices that counsel friendship or parley or compromise with the world. The spirit of Herod is in it. If you cannot preserve that indwelling without flying, from somewhere or something or someone, then fly. 
if you cannot guard that presence without losing all, then let all be lost, and in losing all you shall find more than all. 2. Side by side with these evidences of his divinity, the infancy and childhood of Jesus revealed his dependence and weakness, that is, the reality of his human nature. The first recorded act of his mother shows us one aspect of that weakness, after a fashion which appeals to the tenderest recollections of the whole human family. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and then, as though to mark forever the perfection of dependence, the history goes on, and laid him in a manger. There are other equally striking incidents teaching just as clearly that the babe was a babe, and that the child was really a child. It is the perfect union of him who was and is and is to come, with him who flourisheth as the flower of the field, the wind passeth over him, and he is gone. Even so may Christ be formed in you. The purity and dignity of his life will be all the more wonderfully glorious in the eyes of men and angels, because it is linked with dependence and trial, and weakness and sorrow. As it was at Nazareth, so it is now. Hand in hand with divinity walked hunger and weariness, poverty, disappointment, and toil. Did we think it would be otherwise? Did we, do we, sometimes wonder why the road is so rough, and the burden so heavy, and the sky so dark? Are we found asking the old question about sitting on the twelve thrones, judging those around us, and sharing in some way the royal glory of a king? And is there an echo of murmuring at these bonds and infirmities and drudgeries of daily duty and common sorrow? So did the rabbis of old, and in consequence refused him. Ah, the answer to it all is in the one word. It was because he was made perfect through suffering. It was because he learned obedience by the things he suffered that he must do it again through you, in you. Every energy of your being may thus be sanctified. Every pain, every sorrow, every joy, every purpose will be not taken away, not crushed and hardened into a series of unfeeling forms and empty signs, not passed over as having no relation to his life, but touched and purified and ennobled with the love and power of an indwelling God. Yes, it is man whom he came to restore. It is man whose beauty and power were the glory of creation that drew him with infinite attractions from the center of his Father's heaven and plunged him into the center of a very hell of suffering and shame. It was man whose nature, passing by the angels, he took upon him. It was man he swore to save. He loves our manhood, its will 
its intelligence, its emotions, its passions. And it is our manhood he has redeemed. He designs to make men really men, to cleanse, to restore, to indwell in them, and finally to present everyone in the beauty of a perfected character before the presence of his Father, without spot or blemish or any such thing. It is this great principle of redemption that has found expression in the Salvation Army. We are of those who see in every human being the ruins of the temple of God, but ruins which can be repaired and reconstructed, that he may fit them for his own possession, and then return and make them his abode. Never listen to that fatal lie that to be a man means of necessity to always be a sinner, that humanity is only another word for irreclaimable desert or irreparable despair. When the enemy of your soul whispers to you out of his lying heart that because sin has found one of its strongholds in the appetites and propensity of your poor body, or in the original perversity of a rebellious spirit, and that you cannot be expected to triumph over that evil nature because it is your nature, remember Bethlehem and answer him with the promise of God, I will dwell in you and walk in you. It was because he purposed to cleanse wholly, body and soul and spirit, that he came, taking the body and soul and spirit of a man, and that he will come again, taking your body, soul, and spirit as his dwelling place. 3. The birth and childhood of Jesus were the beginning of his great sacrifice, as well as the preparation for it. The spirit of Bethlehem and the spirit of Calvary are one. He was born for others, that he might die for others. The mystery of God in the babe was the beginning of the mystery of God on the cross. The one was a part of the other. If they had not laid him in a manger for us, they could never have laid him in the tomb, that he might taste death for every man. And it was because he grew and waxed strong in spirit and increased in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him in those early years, that he was able afterwards to tread the winepress alone, to work out a perfect example of manhood, to wrestle with death and the grave, and finally to stand forth for us as the great victorious one, conqueror of all our foes. And is it not in this same fashion and for this same purpose that Christ is to be formed in us? He grew. Progress is the law of happiness, the law of holiness, the law of life. To stand still is to die. It was not enough for the fulfillment of his great mission that he should be born, that he should live. He must grow. 
Let us take that lesson to our hearts in this superficial, painted, rushing generation. Let us beware of resting our hope to satisfy the eternal claims of God upon some great event in our spiritual history of long ago. It is not enough to have been converted. It is not enough to have had the adoption of the Father. It is not enough to have entered the spiritual family of Christ. It is not enough that even Jesus revealed himself in us. Thousands of false hopes are built on these past events, which, divinely wrought as they may have been, have ceased to possess any vital connection with the life and character of today. Such a religion is a religion of memory, destined to be turned in the presence of the throne to unmixed remorse. But how and in what are we to grow? In manner and in substance like our Lord. Jesus grew in strength and stature, in wisdom and in grace. The grace of God was upon him. In spiritual strength and stature, that is, from the timid babe to the bold and valiant soldier, in the power to do the things we ought to do, in the ability to obey the inward voice. It is by the exercise of the muscles and tendons of the babe that the bodily frame is fitted for the rush and struggle of life. It is by the ABC of the infant class that the mind is fitted to comprehend and appreciate the duties and obligations of political, social, physical, and family relationships. It is by the humble wail of the penitent and the daily acts of loving help that the soul learns to soar on eagle's wings and shout the truth that God is gracious, and to brave difficulty and danger in his service. They go forth from strength to strength. Are you so journeying? In wisdom. Wisdom is a thing of the heart more than of the brain, and the wisdom of God is really a revelation of the love of God. To be wise unto salvation is to learn the lesson of love. To be wise to win souls is first to love souls. To feel that it is more blessed to give than to receive is the fruit of love. How different this from the calculating wisdom of this world. Dear comrade and friend, are you taking care that the divine life in you shall grow after this Christ-like fashion? When I hear Christian people say, Oh, I have so little love, so little faith, so little joy, I generally find that it is so because they stifle and quench the blessed yearnings of the divine spirit to seek the souls of others. Because they leave unanswered the urgings and promptings of duty, which God in their conscience is demanding. Because they neglect prayer, and self-denial, and heart-searching, and the Word of God. Because, in short, they starve the child. What wonder if love and faith are feeble and joy is like to die? 
and the grace of God was upon him. Here was the promise of that entire sacrifice for men, which culminated when a man cried out to him on the cross, He saved others, himself he cannot save. It is ever thus that God repeats himself. When we are ready to be offered up for the blessing and saving of others, then grace will come upon us for the struggle as it came upon him. When Christ, formed in us, finds free course for all his mind and all his passion, when our eyes are opened to the great purposes of his life in the salvation of the whole world, and when we hear through him the cry of those for whom he was born and for whom he died, God will pour out on us grace to send us forth, grace sufficient, grace abundant, grace triumphant. Have you come to this? Can you say he is thus dwelling in you and working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure? Do not turn away with the paralyzing fear that it cannot be, that the life of Jesus can never be lived out again in flesh and blood. Remember, he is the same yesterday and today and forever. All he was in Bethlehem to Mary and Joseph, all he was to his workmates at Nazareth, all he was in the wilderness fighting with fiends, in the deserts feeding the hungry, or among the multitude, healing the sick, blessing the little children, casting out devils, and preaching the kingdom, all he was in Bethany, weeping over Lazarus, and crying, Lazarus, come forth, in the garden of his agony, in the darkness of his cross, in the hour of his resurrection. All this, all, all, all he is today. He belongs to the everlasting now. All he was to the martyrs who died for his name, all he has been to our fathers, he is to us, and will be to our children. For with him is no variableness nor shadow of turning. Yes, this unchanging Christ is in us except we be reprobate, the life and image of God and the hope of glory. End of chapter 4. Recording by Tom Hirsch.